that you're here. We're going to continue on our series called Going In. We're in the middle of a series called Going In. And the whole premise of this series is to remove anything that's blocking us from the promises of God. I I think I looked it up this past week, and there's over 5,000 promises that God made in his book. And they're almost like checks that we can take to the bank. They are for us. They're, They're to demonstrate not only the amazing, unparalleled greatness of God, but they're also, they're, they're, they're like what we need in order to live fully in the purpose that God has created us for. So we said, hey, you know what? We want to go in. We want to let nothing hold us back from God's promises. And I'm just, I'm honored to be with you here today to continue on in this series. So going in is pursuing something with unparalleled enthusiasm. Pastor Jim has used the picture of athletes. They're just going in, whether it's the Olympics or the NBA. Like we looked at Kobe Bryant. He just retired the other day. He played 20 seasons, I think it was, in the NFL. One of the most decorated and amazing athletes that the NBA has seen in in, in recent decades. And I mean, he goes out and he scores 60 points in his last game. Like he's just going in. Like that is the picture of going in, letting nothing, like that's his last game. He could just, he could just, you know, trot to the finish line. He goes in, he scores 60 points. And I love that. And we want to say, you know what, we want to take anything out of our path that's blocking us from going in. And the, and the key text that we have looked at in this series is in Numbers 13. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. There's this area of land that he's promised to give them. And then Moses says, hey, we're going to send some scouts into the land to check it out. He, he sends a, a member from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Go in, spy out the land, check out the city, see what they're like, check out the food and the soil that is in this land. Check out, check out the people, see, see you know, where they are. And, and they're, they're probably trying to develop a strategy to go in and conquer that land. God has promised them that land. They just have to go in. So the spies go into the land. They come out, and with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, these ten other guys, they don't have a good report about what, what, what is going on in the land. I mean, there's a couple good things. They say, yeah, the, the land is flowing with milk and honey, exactly what God said, and look at these grapes. The grapes were so huge. There was some of the produce that was coming out of this land that they needed two dudes to carry this cluster of grapes. I wish our grapes today were like that. That would be sweet. Imagine like a grape, like a grape the size of a grapefruit. I don't know. That'd be kind of cool. I don't know. Sorry, that was a bunny trail. All right, but, uh, and, and part of their report is, is they come out and they're saying, man, these people are so strong. There's no way that we're going to be able to take this land. It's not going to happen. And I want you to see one key verse in Numbers 13 before we jump in on what we're about to talk to you today about. And I want you to see in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, what the Israelites say when they come back out of spying uh, the land. They say this, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, And we looked the same to them, speaking of the people that live in this land. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And what this does is this points to the matter of identity. And that's what we're going to talk today today about. And the Israelites were doubtful. They said, "Uh, I don't know if we can go in because of their identity. And I tell you what, they were in danger of allowing their identity to hold them back from going in. So this is, this is what we're going to talk uh, today about. And if, if I told you a little bit about myself, uh, probably, and I've probably mentioned this in a lot of messages, so I hope I'm not wearing it out. But I love Star Wars. Ever since I was a kid, I have absolutely loved Star Wars. If you go into my office in the back there, there's one whole wall completely dedicated to Star Wars. Whether you think that's awesome or whether you're judging me right now, 
I don't care. I just love it ever since I was a kid. And something I appreciate about Star Wars is the dedicated fan base that you find in different age groups and people all around the world. And when you get, when you get people together that are passionate about one thing, when you see this dedicated fan base, all kinds of debates and conversations and arguments come out of that. I've had many conversations with some of our students about Star Wars and we talk about the stories and we critique it and we critique the special effects that they used in the movies. And then, you know, you move on to saying, okay, well, what order do we watch the movies in? Do we watch them in chronological order? One, two, three, four, five, six, and eventually seven, which just came out. Uh, or do we watch them in, you know, in the order that they were released? Do we do four, five, six, one, two, three, and then seven? And, and I've even read blogs. People have written blogs about what order you should watch these movies in. It, it's it, it's kind of crazy. Um, there's, there's, so, there's so much like culture tied in around like this, this one series of stories. And something that I found really, really interesting, and this is going to lead us into the topic that we want to talk about today. There have even been what we would call fan edits or fan cuts. What this is is where fans will take the movies and they will re-edit them themselves to make the story, you know, either truer to what they think Star Wars should be like or they cut out the characters they don't like. There was a fan cut done of the very, very first prequel that was done, episode one. It's called The Phantom Edit instead of The Phantom Menace. It was actually done by a professional editor and he took 18 minutes out of this movie that's a little over two hours long. And I've never watched this, but as I thought about it, I said, that's really interesting, and I'm sure I could find some things in that movie that I would want to cut out myself. But I thought, you know what, that's really interesting because with 18 minutes being cut out of that movie, that's a lot of time and dialogue and scenes, and I hope they didn't take out any of the fight scenes because they're just sweet. But that's a lot of time taken out of this movie. And I, I asked myself, I wonder if the identity of the original film, what that looked like in this film, and I'm, I'm going to have to go home later and watch it, but I said, I wonder if this edit changed the original identity of the film. And, and I think what this does is this speaks to the state of our culture today. If we look at our culture, if we just take a minute and look at our culture, I think that we see that it's lost its, its collective identity. If we take a second and think about it, we, I think, will very quickly realize that our culture practically worships marketable images. Wh- whether it's Hollywood or, or ESPN, whether it's, you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies or, or TED Talks, um, you know, it could be the, the advertising giants of Madison Ave or MTV or from the billboards on the highway to the magazines in the grocery store. We practically worship these things. And I'll tell you what, if our culture is struggling with its collective identity, naturally this touches our individual identities. And then, then, then here's what happens. Our identities are essentially under assault from all of these marketable images. I mean, it's saturated on TV and on the radio and, like I said, the, grocery, the, the magazines in the grocery store. Wherever we go, we find these marketable images. And then, then here's what happens. That, that saturation, that, that kind of assault, if you will, of those marketable images on our identity, what happens is we, we start comparing ourselves to these images of, of success or value or, or greatness or, or whatever image they're trying to portray. And I'll tell you, this is where we get into trouble sometimes. Because if we align ourselves, if we align our identity with these, with these images, if we make them the measurement, the benchmark to say, this is, this is going to be my identity, whether I'm successful or I'm valuable or I'm popular, or I've released this many albums or I drive this or I drink this or I live here, it throws everything else out of alignment. And I'll show you. The Greek philosopher Pragatoris said, this. He said, man is the measurement of all things. Now let's go down this. Let, let's, let's see how this progresses. Let, let's go down the progression here. If we start to measure all things using man as the measurement, then who are we measuring? Where does the measurement end? Are we, are we measuring Adolf Hitler? Are we measuring Mother Teresa? Are we measuring Steve Jobs? Are we measuring Kobe Bryant? Who are we measuring? 
And, and that measurement, that yardstick, if you will, is going to vary vastly from person to person. Well, you're valuable because of the salary that you make, or you're popular because of how many followers you have on social media, or you're successful because you have this many zeros behind, you know, your salary, or because you're cool because you hang out with, with this group of friends, or, or you're valuable because of fill in the blank, whatever we would put in there. And I'll tell you what this can become. Very easily it becomes a never-ending journey of trying to find significance, of trying to find our identity if we focus on these marketable images and, and things like this. And I'll tell you what, it's identity theft in the worst way. It's identity theft in the worst way. So what can we do about this? What can we, what can we do about this crisis? What can we do about the assault that's happening our, on our identities every single day with, with the saturation of these marketable images? What can we do about it? What does God tell us to do about it? Did Jesus ever interact with this topic? What does the Bible have to say about this? And I'm really happy because the Bible does talk about this. So why don't you open up your Bibles or your electronic device. We're going to go to Judges chapter 6. It's the sixth book in the Old Testament. You start at the beginning, Genesis. Six books in. We have the book of Judges chapter 6. And I want to explore the significance of our identity and how it affects us going in. Because as we looked in Numbers 13, the Israelites were in danger of allowing their identity to hold them back from going in. And we don't want this to be one of those giants, as Pastor Jim uh, referred to in one of, one of the earlier messages. We don't want our identity to be one of those giants that holds us back from going in on God's promises. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Judges chapter 6 before we jump in. At this point in history, the nation of Israel is under Midianite rule. And I'll tell you what, the Midianites are brutal. Like These guys are like heartless. They are so oppressive, we find in the text, that the Israelites were hiding in mountains and just in the natural places that they could hide. This is how oppressive they were. They weren't even like staying in their homes where they lived. They said, we got to get out of here. So they're hiding in the mountains. The Midianites would ruin all of the Israelites' crops. They were constantly killing all Israel's livestock. Repeatedly, they would just kill the, kill the livestock off. And they impoverished Israel so much that the nation of Israel, the Israelites, they cried out to God for help. And this is where we run into our main character, Gideon. We're going to read Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. And we're going to see how Gideon's identity affects him, either for the, for the good or for the bad, on going in on God's promises. So let's, let's read Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Orpha that belonged to, biblical name, the biblical tribe. You guys can help me pronounce that. Oh my gosh. Joash the Abazarite. Woo. All right, let's continue on. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Verse 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the weakest of my family. And finally, verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all of the Midianites together. Here's what I want to call your attention to. God made two promises to Gideon. 
And we could, we could focus on this, but I'll just explain it for a little bit of context. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. But at some point in this interaction with Gideon, first he's talking with the angel of the Lord, and then he's actually talking with the Lord. So at some point in this interaction, I think God and the angel of the Lord, the Lord flipped. But that's just a little bit of context to explain the two promises that was made to Gideon. And we don't have to go any further uh, on that. We could spend a lot of time on that. Uh, the first is, is that the Lord will be with you. That's the first promise. And the second one is that I will be with you. So they're, they're essentially one and the same. And then with the promise comes an amazing assignment, which we see in verse 14 and verse 16. Go and save Israel and strike down all the Midianites. But if we could just go a little bit deeper, if we could zoom in, if you will, on this interaction, just these couple verses, there's something else that I want to draw your attention to. So in verse 12, it says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then in verse 14, it says, Go in the strength you have and to save Israel. This is... To Gideon. And then Gideon says in verse 15, he says, Pardon me, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And here's what I want to draw your attention to. Two versions of Gideon's identity have been presented in this interaction. There's two versions. God is saying, on the one hand, you're a mighty warrior. And if I could summarize what Gideon is saying on the other side, he's like, I'm, I'm just a scrub. Like, I'm like the least in my family. I'm from an insignificant clan. I, I, I can't do any of this. And at this point, Gideon has a choice. He has a choice as to which version of his identity he's going to believe. And that will determine as to whether he'll go in on God's promises or not. And if you take anything away from what I say today, I want you to take away this. This is the one principle that I'm going to focus on today. Alignment is the launching pad to God's promises. Alignment is the launching pad to God's promises. Tweet that, put it on Facebook, put it on Instagram. That's what we're going to talk about today. Alignment is the launching pad to God's promises. Let me define alignment. Alignment is a position of agreement. Alignment is putting yourself in the best position to accomplish something. So so a practical real-life example of this would be, uh, say, students. You're doing a math test or whatever. Before you jump in and you do that math test, you have to align yourself with the parameters of that test before you hop in and start doing it. You got to see if there any proofs. What is x equal? What is y equal? I don't know, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a math major. I was terrible at math, so I, I hope you know what I'm talking about. But before you jump in and do the assignment, you have to align yourself with, with whatever you are going to need to accomplish that test. You have to align yourself with your job description before you can effectively do your job. What am I supposed to do? Who do I report to? What time do I have to come in? Is there a dress code? All these other things before you can effectively do your job. And as we align ourselves with God's version of our identity, it breeds confidence to go in on his promises. That's the launching pad, I, aligning ourselves with God's version of our identity. And at this point, we could ask ourselves, what version of his identity was Gideon viewing? I like to put it this way. Is he viewing the, the theatrical cut? Remember we talked about the fan's cut, that the fan took the theatrical cut, if you will, the version of the movie that was released to the public, and he made his own version. But the theatrical cut is the version that was released to the public. That, that, was, that is the version. What's Gideon believing? Is he believing the theatrical cut? Is he believing that he is a mighty warrior? Or is he believing the fan's cut? Is he believing that, he, that he's like a scrub, like he's the least in his family, in one of the weakest clans of Manasseh? What version is he believing? Let's continue to examine Gideon's story, and I think we're going we're to find some really good stuff. So I'm going to continue to summarize the story for the sake of time. So in verse 25 and 26 of, of chapter 6, we see that the angel tells Gideon to go and tear down his father's altar to a pagan god. This is before he's going to go off and he's going to save Israel. So Gideon obeys. He tears down his, his, his father's altar. He does what the angel of the Lord tells him to do. 
And I'll tell you what, the townspeople are not happy because they don't have anywhere to worship. In fact, they were so angry, they wanted to kill Gideon. That's pretty intense. And here's what I think the angel is doing. In, in telling Gideon to do this, I think the angel is testing him to see if he, like what version of his identity he's aligning with. Is he going to align, again, to use, use the terms that I've introduced to you? Is he viewing the theatrical cut? Is he viewing himself according to his true identity that God called him? Is he viewing himself as a mighty warrior? Or is he worried about what the townspeople are going to think about him, that they're going to be mad at him? Is he viewing it, I don't want to take that risk. They're going to be mad at me. What version is he looking at? And then as we continue on with our story into Judges chapter 7, Gideon moves against the the enemy army with his own army. Now if we look back into Judges chapter 6, and I'll I'll tell you this, you don't have to turn there. In verse 33 of Judges uh, chapter 6, we find that this this army that Gideon is moving against is the Midianites, all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people. So this is like a bunch of people groups gathered together to form one sick, huge army. Like, this, this, is, this is not looking good for Gideon and his army. And if that isn't bad enough, if that isn't bad enough that this is a huge army that Gideon is moving against, that God said, hey, I'm going to be with you. Go and save Israel. If that isn't bad enough, God says to Gideon, your army's too big, bro. You got to cut it down. Man, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, Lord, you are crazy. I don't need less people. I need more people. This is all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the, e- the Eastern people, the other Eastern people. What are you talking about, Lord? But you know what? God knows what's going on. And through a series of tests, God reduces Gideon's army from 32,000 people. That, that's a pretty sweet army. Down to 300 people. He goes from 32 to 300 as far as we know, the text doesn't say that the, the, the enemy army was reduced in size at all. If I'm getting, I'm like, man, I don't want to go in. <laughs> I don't want to go in. But you know what? I think, I think God knows what Gideon is thinking. Because if I'm getting, I'm thinking, man, God, you're crazy. And in Judges 7, 7, it says this. I want you to check this out. I think God knows what Gideon's thinking. With the 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. And God does exactly this. The story ends with Gideon and his men winning a huge victory. And if we continue on into, into Judges chapter 8, verse 10, it tells us, you want to know the size of that Midianite army that they defeated with the Midianites and the Amalekites and all those other people? Remember, Gideon went from 32,000 down to 300. You know what the size of that army was that they defeated? 135,000 people with 300. And through the course, uh, through the course of the battle, other, other, other tribes of Israel were called out to assist them. But it started with 300 dudes. And they defeated 120,000 of the 135,000 in that army, all because Gideon chose to align himself with God's version of his identity. As he aligned himself with God's version of his identity, it launched him to go in. There's no other way that he could have done that. There is no way that you could go up against an army of 135,000 people without aligning himself with God's version of his identity and be willing to go into that promise, to go in, say, I'm going to go after that promise. I'm going to pursue that promise with unparalleled enthusiasm that God is going to be with me the entire time. There's no other way that that could happen. There's no other way that he could go in because alignment gives, uh, gives us confidence in who God has made us to be. This confidence fueled Gideon. He took the risk. He went in. And when he went in on God's promise, he delivered an entire country from some of the most brutal rulers, some of the most brutal oppressors that they ever were under in their history. All because he aligned himself with God's version of his identity. 
Now, how does this apply to us? Maybe you're asking, well, what version of my identity am I believing? If we could use those, those theatrical terms, am I, am I looking at the, am I viewing myself according to the theatrical cut, according to what God, according to who God says I am? Or am I viewing the fans cut? Have I changed the content in my movie to fit my perspective or my likes or my tastes? How do I know the difference? I mean, we don't know the difference between the two. We have some difficulty discerning the difference. Maybe, maybe you're asking, what does God's version of my identity look like? How do I stop watching that, that, that fan cut? And how do I start watching the theatrical version? I'll tell you what, in order to go in on God's promises, we need to view our identity according to God's version. So why don't we do this? Why don't we align ourselves with God's version of our identities today? And I want to take you through some verses, and I'm going to do this topically. We could spend, we could spend weeks and months and probably even years studying who God says that we are, but I just want to give you a taste. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Romans 8.17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I love these two verses, and there's many more that, that communicate this point. I love these two verses because they tell us as Christians, our identity is a part of God's royal family. I think, I think a lot of us would be able to say, yeah, I, I know, I understand that I'm a part of God's royal family, but, but have we really aligned ourselves with that truth? Have we allowed that, that, that truth to overtake our thinking and our actions and our attitudes and all that other stuff? Like, like we know it, but are we really living it out? And I don't say that to make you feel bad. But many of us, we don't, we don't view ourselves as royalty. We've been caught up in the garbage and in the issues and in the stuff in our lives, and then we let our past experience tell us who we are. We let our past experience say, this is who you are. Or maybe we view our identity according to our salary or our background or, or our education or how much money we make or, or, or the house that we live in or compared to the marketable images of success that I mentioned earlier. If this is happening, then we're viewing our identity according to the fan cut And I'll tell you what, regardless of our circumstances and our past history, God has a theatrical cut. His word is true, regardless of what we've been through. What his word says about us is true. So let's look at a few more verses. Let's look at the the script for that theatrical version, the the, the place where God tells us who we really are, our true identity. 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What that verse tells me is that we're 100% loved and we are worthy to be a part of God's family because of his love. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not performance-based. We, we didn't earn a position in God's family. It's because of his love. He loved us like 100%. And because of that love, we were made a part of God's family, that royal family. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone The new is here. We've been made completely new people. We've been given God's divine nature. The flesh was dealt with at the cross. We've been made completely new. We've been given the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice two things in that verse. God said he'll meet all of our needs. He didn't say, I'm going to meet some of your needs or the needs that you need met most or the needs that I feel like meeting at this day or the needs that are most convenient for me. He didn't say that. He said he's going to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. God's generosity is so great that he loves to meet all of our needs according to his standard of generosity. He's able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Isn't that sweet? Romans 6.11, let's keep going. In the same way, 
count or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. We are dead to sin, completely dead to sin. If you're dead to something, there's no going back. We are dead to sin and have a victorious DNA in us. Literally, our spiritual DNA is the same as Jesus. Our nature is the same as him. It goes against the grain of our nature to sin because we have the same divine nature in us as Jesus. Romans 5.17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through Christ Jesus? We are victorious in every area of life because of what Jesus did on the cross, and he gave us righteousness, which is right sinning before God, and he gave us grace to be able to live out the life, the destiny, the calling, the purpose that God created us for. And listen, we could go on and on. I mean, Jeremiah, Psalms, uh, the Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians. We, we, could, we could spend so much time on our identity. These are just a few of the thoughts that God has for us. This is just a taste of what he says about us, about who we truly are, about, again, that theatrical cut. What, what version are we looking at? But how do we practically apply this? Now that we've seen a glimpse, how do we practically apply this in our lives? As we meditate on this truth, meditate, and I'll explain this in a minute. As we meditate on this truth, the truth of who God says that we are, it will radically transform us. Did you know that the word meditate is closely related to the word medicine? So in the best and in the most positive sense, meditation is thinking in, in a way to make oneself well, in order to make oneself healthy. I'll tell you what, it, I am done looking at the fan's cut of my identity. I am done changing the content. I'm done looking at my past experience, my addiction, my, my OCD, my, my anxiety. I'm done at looking at all these things to say, this is who I am. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to meditate on the truth that God said, this is who you are, and that's going to radically transform me, and I'm going to think in a way to make myself healthy. Chris Valentin said this. He said, we become the person God has made us to be when we meditate on the things that God says about us. Isn't that beautiful? I'll tell you what, if we want to align with our true identity, then we can't think of ourselves as any less that God thinks of us. If we want to align ourselves with our true identity, then we cannot think of ourselves any differently than God thinks about us. And God's version of our identity, it breeds confidence, just like Gideon. It breeds that confidence to go in and not allowing our identity to be the giant that blocks us from God's promises. So let me ask you today, what's distracting you from your true identity? Because I'll tell you what, whatever's distracting us from our true identity is sabotaging our ability to go in on his promises. I don't know about you. I don't want anything to hold me back from God's promises. The Bible, 66 books, has over 5,000 promises. I don't want anything to hold me back from those. I don't want nothing to hold me back from those promises that he's going to provide for all of my needs. That he's made me a new creation. He's given me the mind of Christ. So the same mind that imagined how he could create the world in seven days, completely unique. Like if we were one more degree tilted, our seasons would be completely off. If we were like a little bit closer to the sun, we would fry. If we were a little bit further away, we'd freeze. We have that same exact mind, that same exact imagination. And he gave us that promise. I, I, I can do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. I don't know about you. I can imagine an awful lot. I can ask for a lot of things. And I am not going to let anything hold me back from that promise. What is holding us back from understanding who God has said that we are? What's blocking us aligning ourselves, putting ourselves in that position to think how God thinks about us? Is it sin? Is it our past mistakes? Man, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. That didn't keep him back from going in. He went in, man. He was going all in. 
Is it our circumstances? Is it our background? Gideon was a scrub. He was like the least person of his family in the weakest clan. And God plucked him out of nowhere and delivered his entire country from an enemy of 135,000. The odds were 135,000 to 300. And God did an amazing victory. Don't let that hold you back. Again, is it, our, is it our family background? He was the youngest. He was a nobody. Is it our relationships? Are we allowing our relationships to hold us back? Man, Gideon made a whole town angry to the point of wanting to kill him. But he was obedient. He went in. What's holding us back? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask them to play for us. I believe that some of us need an encounter with God's love today. The first verse that I started off with when talking about aligning ourselves with God's tread in us, 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love that he lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Some of us in here need an encounter with God's love today. We've been caught up in the garbage of our lives. We've let our past experience tell us who our identity is. But I'll tell you what, when you are touched with the love of God, when we are touched by God's just incredible, unparalleled love, man, it, it starts pointing us in the right direction of who he's made us to be because nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's another promise, Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you.